Welcome everyone to uh, Sum Zero again. Um, uh, we are going to be talking today with Hugh Dias from from Navis Capital. Uh, Hugh is a China expert, and we um, spoke to him actually last July in 2022 uh, to answer the question of whether China is is uninvestable or not. Um, and we wanted to follow up to just kind of get an update on uh, the Chinese market, um, talk a little bit about some of the bigger tech names, uh, and a few other smaller ones. Um, but Hugh, great to have you back. Um, always great to, to get your insights. Um, I guess since our last conversation, a lot's happened, uh, in China, the most notable being the, the spy balloons incident. Um, but, uh, um, maybe we can just start off with like, if you can just give a quick summary of, of, of kind of what you think are, the, the most important takeaways over the last, you know, call it seven months or so. Um, and, and then we can, we can dive a little deeper into some of the, some individual names as well. Great, great to be talking to you again. Um, I'm kind of interested that you should mention this, the kind of the balloon incident is a major thing. Uh, to me, it's a relatively minor thing. Um, so at least for me, the biggest change has been the pivot um, away from the zero tolerance policies related to COVID. Um, so, you know, China's COVID policy was very harsh. Um, it lasted for far longer than in any other country. Um, you know, up until October, all the narrative suggested that they would stick to it for a long time. Um, and then the pivot was very rapid. And it's a massive change. You know, you can't, cannot undertake normal economic activity when you're in a state of lockdown or possible lockdown. Um, and now, you know, the Chinese economy has reopened. So the pivot away from COVID is, you know, very big and has a massive impact on economic activity. Um, it's also representative, in my view, of a more pragmatic overall approach from the party towards a whole range of matters. Um, so, you know, the party allowed access to the US regulator to audit records. Um, they have um, been, if you want, backpedaling a bit from some of the harsher um, crackdown uh, measures on the tech and education sector. So the implementation rules have been softened. Um, you know, I guess when we spoke in July last year, you know, the uh, Xi Jinping's main priority would have been re-election um, in October. And now his priority is stabilizing the economy. Um, so there's a completely different mindset. Um, you know, China has also become more pragmatic in its relations with other countries. Uh, wolf warrior diplomacy has been toned down. You know, a lot of friendlier gestures have been made, particularly towards continental European countries and to Australia. Um, so there's been a very big change in attitude um, and in particular, um, you know, economic activity can recover in the absence of, you know, very harsh policies that have been suppressing it. I'm sorry, one more thing. There's another big change, but- I'm curious, one thing that, I mean, I, one of the most notable- Go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was going to ask, um, one of the most, uh, I guess, dramatic moments 
in uh, geopolitics recently was his uh, when he pulled uh, Hu Jintao um, out of his seat <laughs> um, uh, back in October, and and so I think that's when I was getting text messages from friends in the hedge fund industry who were like, "We can't invest in China now because you know he's sort of like almost like kind of graphically." Uh, almost declared his authoritarian nature in a sense. Um, how do you sort of reconcile that with the the end of the zero tolerance policy? Or I mean, was that a moment for you where you maybe questioned uh, where China was staying and how friendly it might be to foreign investors? Okay, so um, during uh, the Communist Party Congress. Uh, all the messaging was very, if you want, harsh, and I would say very easy to interpret negatively, but it was politics. Um, and what is surprising, and I guess shocked the market, was how rapidly uh, more pragmatic policies basically were rolled out. Um, and so I think in China, there's always a gap between if you want narrative and substance. And, you know, Chinese entrepreneurs know that very well, and they know they need to say the right thing. But, you know, behavior and action doesn't have to match with your words. Um, and so if you look at the actions taken by the party in November and December, they're absolutely not consistent with the messaging that was given out at the Congress in October. Uh, but that shouldn't really be a big surprise uh, because it's kind of always like that. Um, what would you say was the direct uh, cause of that policy reversal? Okay, so, so I think the policy reversal was always in the works. So the problem with the policy is it wasn't economically sustainable. And in particular, local governments were running out of money. You know, their revenue comes largely from land sales and their costs had gone up a lot. And you know, the, the policy had basically killed land sales. Uh, the expenses of all the testing and the lockdowns very high. Um, and so local governments were running out of money. Um, and so it wasn't the economically sustainable policy. Um, it, it kind of had to change. Um, now, of course, there were um, kind of relatively widespread protests, which happened after people died um, in a fire in uh, Xinjiang province, where many people you know, blamed the lockdown rules for the deaths of people. Uh, but I personally think that uh, the party is not very good at listening to protests. If anything, when people protest, it tends to harden their resolve to go the other way. I think this change was always planned. Uh, it's just a question of when the official narrative was going to change. Um, and so suddenly in November, you suddenly got messages, you know, COVID's not so bad after all. Um, and, um, you know, that when that was when it became clear that, that a, you know, the timing for the pivot was was now politically correct, uh, whereas previously it wasn't. But I think it had been planned for a long time. 
and you don't see there being a risk of uh, like other kind of non-COVID related policies, or maybe to rephrase, what are the non-COVID related policies that you know you 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 could see see being a a, a risk to investing in China that would sort of put us back in the place we were as those zero COVID as the zero COVID policy was being put in place. I mean, recently I saw him in the news. What was he in the news about? Like building a steel, a, a wall of steel around China, something like that. He was in the headlines for that. Um, kind of like military talk. And I'm just, I'm just curious, have any of that is substantive or just more posturing in your opinion? So, you know, I think there's always a risk of surprises. And I guess in my view, the big overall risk with Xi Jinping is that he might prioritize ideology uh, far more than uh, pragmatism. And you know, one of the strengths of the Chinese Communist Party over the last 40 years has really been their pragmatism. Um, and in my view, what we've seen subsequent to October is a return to pragmatism. Um, could they be backsliding? Uh, yes. Um, but um, you know, I'll go back to my early point is you know, people shouldn't pay that much attention to narrative and they should look more at the actions. Um, and um, kind of you shouldn't get stared by narrative that sounds unsettling. It's actions which um, you know, undermine the economy that should be unsettling. So, uh, the, the reversal on, on zero COVID, obviously a huge policy change. Um, the Chinese markets, uh, I mean, they, they kind of went up and then back down. I'm assuming your view is that the, uh, the sort of intrinsic value of, 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 of the Chinese market is not reflected in current stock prices, at least, at least for the, I think in the past we've talked about Alibaba um and um you know some of the bigger names like baidu um but you know it might be instructive to 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 go through some of some of these individual names again to just see kind of where they're at today versus where they were you know last summer um and and what has been reflected and what hasn't so um do you want to start with 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 alibaba being you know just being that it's it's obviously the most well-known name in, in China, um, just from a valuation standpoint and kind of what's priced in and, and what maybe isn't, uh, and then we can kind of dig in a little bit from there. Sure. So, you know, I think stock prices have been driven very much by sentiment rather than by the underlying fundamentals. Um, and so I think, you know, when we spoke in July last year, Alibaba might have been trading at about $100. Uh, an ADR, um, that was down about two thirds from where it had been about two years earlier. Um, today it's about 80, so it's only a little bit up, but actually it bounced all the way from under 70 to 120 at the end of January. You know, so the if you're on reopening euphoria, you know, added more than 70% Alibaba stock price. Um, and that was really the expectation that, you know, we'd be in a kind of a more normal operating environment, a recovery of growth expectations, 
and the market started pricing that in. And then since the end of January, a whole series of things have depressed sentiment. Uh, first, there was um, you know, the view uh, in the US that um, inflation might be more persistent and interest rates might need to be higher for longer. And I guess that thinking has only recently changed because of the problems of Silicon Valley Bank. Um, then there was the balloon incident. And I would say ratcheting it up of all the uh, narrative around geopolitical content and new rules to restrict China's access to semiconductors that could have you know, dual use. Um, and so there's been a ratcheting up of that. And then a kind of a big blow to sentiment, particularly related to Alibaba, was the announcement of a report that JD was uh, going to launch a 10 billion RMB subsidy program. Um, and that basically led to fears of price war in the Chinese e-commerce space. Um, and uh, you know, my perspective on that is that JD had quite a special advantage during COVID lockdowns because um, you know, they're vertically integrated backwards with very strong logistics whereas the other e-commerce players rely on third-party logistics providers. And as a result of the reopening, the third-party logistics providers are now much more reliable, and that kind of undermines an advantage that JD was enjoying. Um, and in addition, Pandora started offering uh, 3C products, which is JD's traditional strength. So JD basically, I think, have come up with the subsidy program as a defensive measure and is primarily trying to defend their kind of core strength against competitive threat from Pandoodle. So I don't personally think that that's going to spill over into a price war with Alibaba. So are you still, uh, you're still bullish on Alibaba? Given yes. all the competitive... So Yes, yes. So I think that if one's taking a three to five year view, um, you know, there's a, I'd say, a, a high probability that Alibaba could double or triple from today's price. And even if it triples from today's price, it would still be less than it was two years ago. Um, so it doesn't take, you know, very much in terms of recovery of sentiment kind of to get there, the fact that it could go up 70% plus in two months kind of shows how quickly sentiment can recover. And of course, this is in the absence of you know, evidence of a return to growth. But as we go into the second half of this year, we should start to see, you know, increase in GMV, uh, increase in revenues, benefits of operating leverage, once all those things come through, um, kind of it's, it's more, it'll be much easier for sentiment to improve. And then maybe something like the balloon incident wouldn't have such an impact on stock prices. Do, that, that target of, you know, Baba tripling, does that factor in just the rates today? I mean, obviously we're in a much different rates environment than when we were, um, you know, a year ago or, or even seven months ago. Um, so is that, is that part of your own modeling and just how you discount um, Alibaba? Okay, so I, I think that question is a very US-centric question. 
because obviously higher rates, um, you know, it uh, reduces stock prices. But you know, China's macro uh, statistics have decoupled from the U.S. And so, you know, Chinese inflation um, at the end of January was 2%. And um, so, you know, they don't have inflation problem. Uh, they've not been increasing interest rates. Uh, with global interest rates going up, they might have to. Uh, but there hasn't been a mismatch between inflation and interest rates in China. Um, and then the other thing about um, you know, the mega Chinese stocks, if they have extraordinarily strong balance sheets, uh, so they've had you know, a cash cow business has generated lots of cash, which has not been distributed to shareholders, basically sits in cash in the balance sheet or has been invested in other investments or strategic initiatives. Um, and so um, you know, to some extent, from a fundamental point of view, they're beneficiaries of rising interest rates, versus at least they'll generate some earnings on their surplus cash assets, which were previously more or less dead assets, not contributing very much to earnings. Where, of course, in the US, most companies are leveraged, and rising interest rates will basically hurt their earnings. Um, we're, we were getting a lot of questions actually on this call, uh, one of which uh, relates to Baba's accounting. Uh, and there have been numerous folks, uh, I think Jim Chanos has been on TV a lot talking about aggressive uh, accounting at, at Baba. And he's, he's, this, this goes back you know, quite, quite a number of years. Uh, what's your take on their accounting practices? Do you have any concerns there? Um, okay, so, so, so I, I do have some concerns. Yeah, I guess my main concern is the lack of granularity in the disclosures. Um, and so it's really hard to do a very um, you know, thorough sum of the parts analysis of Barber because the segmental reporting um, is not that helpful. And in particular, in their Chinese e-commerce business, they have a whole um, bunch of, if you want, loss-making initiatives, uh, which are part of their strategic initiatives, uh, you know, competing against Pandora in group buying, uh, you know, going into the grocery area. Um, now, in the past, in the, in the narrative on the quarterly results, they have disclosed the magnitude of the operating losses in those activities. So you could work out how much you know, the traditional core business of Alibaba was making. But in recent quarters, they've not disclosed that. Um, and so kind of it's hard to do a very thorough analysis. However, my view would be that kind of even if you took, you know, the most pessimistic possible interpretation, kind of the share price is really bombed out, given the you know, competitive position and the strength in the balance sheet. Um, I'll ask another somewhat US-centric question. So here, here in the US, especially with technology investors, I mean, AI has just taken over headlines. Um, what is Baba's positioning in China, at least with respect to AI? Are they considered a leader? I know Baidu is a big part of that conversation as well, but um, where does Baba fit into the AI you know, discussion? Okay, so, you know, I think that Baidu, uh, is considered the leader in AI in China. 
and um, you know they're due to roll out their um, version of ChatGPT uh, quite shortly. Um, you know, so we spoke earlier about the geopolitical um, conflict and, um, you know, the U.S., if you want, containment policy in terms of restricting semiconductor exports. Um, and, of course, you know, uh, AI requires very high-end specialist semiconductors. And I understand Baidu are having some trouble um, because of you know lack of access to those semiconductors. So you know, we'll need to see how that plays out. But um, it seems to me that China you know, will definitely have its own AI. Um, but how um, effective it will be and um, how comparable it would be to the AI we see coming out of the US uh, is an open question. We'll just have to see how that plays out. Um, I, I don't perceive, uh, you know, Alibaba as being, um, you know, at the forefront of AI, although, of course, they have their own, um, you know, initiatives in that area. Uh, we got a question, actually, about uh, China's relationship with Taiwan, you know, whether it's practical or obviously, again, going back to the narrative, I and mean, the narrative is one of aggression, but I'm, I'm curious if you have any updated thoughts on just how they perceive Taiwan. Maybe the, the conversation about semis relates. So <laughs> curious what your thoughts are there. Um, okay, so, so my view is that the way the war in the Ukraine has played out is very bad news for the Chinese Communist Party and their ambitions to reunify with Taiwan. Uh, so, you know, the point there is that invading an island is much more difficult than invading another country across a land border. Um, and, um, you know, the view, I guess, before Russia invaded Ukraine is that they had, you know, overwhelming force in their favor. Um, you know, and it's worked out very badly. So that would, I would say, give the party a lot of pause for thought. And the other surprise would be that the West has been relatively unified in terms of um, you know, sanctions and other messages against Russia. Um, and you know, of course, China is way more integrated into the world economy. But I think all the lessons of the last year would basically um, make China much more cautious about aggressive actions towards Taiwan. If the U.S. were to change its view on the war in Ukraine and, and maybe funnel fewer dollars there, because I, I know, it, uh, you know, I'm just reading headlines, but, you know, Ron DeSantis has started to express views, uh, uh, you know, that would seem to indicate that he's less, he's not as willing to, to fund the war in Ukraine. Obviously Trump, um, he's, he's, he's not a huge fan of, of sending money to Ukraine, uh, at least not of the blank check variety. You know, if the U.S. were in the future to, to take that position, um, would you say that it would be easier for China to go ahead and, and, and you know, or be more aggressive with respect to Taiwan? Or, or do you think ultimately it's just more than they can, more than they can chew and, and, and it's not really you know, it's still not a likely event. Um, so my perspective is that China has very serious problems domestically. 
the economy was exceptionally weak and uh, many of the, if you want, non-pragmatic policies that were pursued over the last couple of years have created some structural damage to the economy. Um, and so there's a really big job and challenge for the party in terms of reviving and strengthening the Chinese economy. Um, and so to you know make a big push on Taiwan while the economy is still weak would just seem to me to be um, you know very poor strategy. Um, so I think they kind of have their hands full with uh, domestic problems, and so I personally don't expect Taiwan to be um, a major risk area. Um, over the next kind of, you know, three to five years. Um, so last year you, you had, um, you know, pointed out that valuations uh, in China were, were just so low um, that, you know, you could triple your money and um, in, in sort of a, a you know, I, I think I think you quoted a, a two-year time frame or, or a relatively short time frame. Um, can you just give us an example of, of kind of what you did in your own portfolio um, you know, during those, I don't know, you could use the summertime or even, even into the fall, uh, where markets had sort of really struggled, um, uh, where you'd sort of taken advantage of that volatility and, and, uh, where some of those names stand today in your portfolio. Okay. So, so there is an example of a stock that has already gone up about four times, um, and in fact, there are global players who participated in that and took advantage of the opportunity. And that is in the after-school tutoring sector. So, you know, China introduced new regulations effectively banning uh, after-school tutoring for curriculum side subjects for younger students from kindergarten to grade nine. Um, and, um, you know, there, there are several listed companies in that sector and stock prices came off, you know, about 95%. Um, and in the case of uh, New Oriental Education, uh, the market cap basically fell to about 50% of their net cash balances. And, you know, these companies, you know, um, had, had raised a lot of money in the market at quite good valuation. So they have, you know, very strong balance sheet. So in the case of New Oriental, they were quite transparent in terms of disclosing to the market, you know, what they were expecting. And they said, we expect half our business to go away, half our business will be unaffected. So they were gonna have a whole bunch of restructuring costs. And then they also disclosed, you know, what they were planning on doing in terms of pivoting and starting new business operations uh, to try and replace lost turnover. So, you know, we made a bet um, that um, the remaining business would end up viable. Um, and so our view is that the share price was massively undervalued because there were 50 cents in the dollar and the business was being valued at nothing. Um, so fast forward to today, the stock price is up about four times. Um, the surprise on the upside is that one of their new initiatives has worked out very well. So they started a live streaming e-commerce business in the agricultural grocery space. 
and their particular niche was using people who are formerly English tutors to basically uh, promote the product and doing it in both English and Chinese so that uh, buyers would have an English lesson at the same time that they're shopping for groceries and agricultural produce. And that business um, has really taken off and is surprisingly high margin for a new e-commerce business. Now, of course, there's an open question to how sustainable that growth is going to be going forward. Um, but they seem to pull the rabbit out of the hat. You know, that was obviously not part of our investment case. But, um, you know, that they have basically, um, you know, stabilized their core after-school tutoring business. And their new initiatives are going well. And the markets rewarded them for that. So that's in a case of, uh, you know, kind of uh, less than 12 months, something's gone up four times. Um, so the main reason that type of multiple is possible is simply because the share price became so stupidly cheap. And, you know, if I look forward now, um, and so the next kind of three years, could New Oriental double from today's price? Perfectly possible. And if their growth in their live streaming e-commerce business proves to be sustainable, you know, it would still be cheap even if the share price doubled. Um, so, um, what multiple does it trade at today? Um, okay, so it's um, it's kind of hard to say because there's a lot of seasonality in their education business. Um, but um, it was, it was trading at about 50% um, of net cash. It's about double net cash today. Um, if you do a sum of the parts, so the live streaming e-commerce business um, is separately listed through a company called Coolin. And if you accept the market price on their stake in Coolin, then the stock is still trading at a discount to net cash. So the question becomes whether the market price of Kulun is overrated and that's at a very high multiple. You know, so it's a very strange thing. There's you know, a very low multiple on the education business, a very high multiple on their nascent e-commerce business and a ton of cash. But if you accept the multiple on the e-commerce business, then the stock is still trading at discount to net cash. Interesting. That sounds like a, a, a long discussion for another call. <laughs> but uh, we also had a question on um, on uh, electrification as it relates to China. Um, so Baidu is obviously a big player in that space. Maybe, it, first of all, is Baidu a name that, that you own in your portfolio or is it, is it more of a name that you just follow kind of from the outside? Um, so we actually managed two funds um, and our second fund, you know, our first fund focused on private equity and venture capital backed companies. And our second fund is a Sharia compliant version of that, uh, but it has a more flexible investment mandate. And we actually own Baidu through our second fund because we think they're going to be a major beneficiary of the reopening. So one of the, um, things that really got killed by uh, the COVID policies is online advertising. Um, 
you know, businesses became much more cautious uh, with their advertising dollars. And with reopening, you know, that should recover quite strongly. So Baidu should be a beneficiary of that. And then, of course, they have a whole number of initiatives in the AI area, which you know, have a lot of upside potential, but it's kind of hard to say, you know, what, what the outcome of those things would be. I would argue that kind of at today's share price, all those AI initiatives are more or less upside options. Um, so you get an option and you're not paying much for it. Uh, therefore, it's a kind of a good buy. But it's kind of hard to say ultimately what the value of those things might be. Have you followed uh, the news on 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 TikTok ban or thought through what what that might mean for um, maybe multiples on Chinese names if TikTok were to get banned? Or is that um, another temporary you know kind of headline that that'll kind of come and go? Okay, so so you know ByteDance and TikTok is kind of unique in being the only major tech player who was you know, very successful in the US market. So if you look at the other Chinese tech names, you know, they're very successful in China and they then kind of, you know, they're big positions in Southeast Asia, but in other markets which are not you know, the major developed markets of the world. So TikTok is kind of unique in being very successful in the US. So if they get banned in the US, um, you know, I don't think it has much of an impact on the fundamentals of the other, you know, big Chinese tech businesses. You know, their operations in the US are really negligible. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think the question is whether it's just, yeah, there's like a, a spillover effect. Um, well, so, 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 so it, it's yeah. very hard to predict sentiment, and it could be a major negative for sentiment. Um, so, you know, I guess a point I want to make is that, um, you know, risk in financial markets is a bit like an iceberg. It's the icebergs you don't see, which are more dangerous. Um, and so the market's been so worried about all these Chinese risks. If we go back to, you know, July last year, very few people are talking about systemic risks in the US market. But if you look at what's happened, um, kind of it turns out that the market was underestimating systemic risks in the US market. Um, and investment is always a relative thing. So when people say, oh, I think China's uninvestable, what they're really saying is I think compared to all the other markets that I could invest in, I can make better returns for less risk by staying out of China. And to me, that view underestimated risks in other places and is overemphasizing the risks in China. The risks in China are well understood. Um, you know, a lot has been said about uh, President Xi's uh, sort of um, feelings towards I mean, the, the education sector, but also the tech sector. Um, uh, we got a question actually about cybersecurity and, and, and security in general as being something that he's more of a fan of. Um, are there any names in that industry that, that you follow that you think are, are interesting uh, from a valuation standpoint or, or just even, you know, thoughts on, on that potentially being, uh, you know, worth screening for 
for folks who are interested in China and, and want to avoid the wrath of <laughs> Xi Jinping. Um, so, so I, I believe that um, positive cash flow is a great mitigator. If sentiment you know, deteriorates, but you invest in a business with very strong positive cash flows, then you have something, then all you need is patience and you can ride it out. Um, mm -hmm. And so the type of names I like are names which have very strong positive cash flows. Um, they might also have a number of initiatives which are burning cash that could generate a lot of value, but the cash for those is underpinned by their cash cut. Um, and so Alibaba and Baidu, I would say, are excellent examples of that, where all their growth initiatives are funded by a very strong cash card business. Therefore, you, know, you don't need to worry about the next round or anything like that. So at this point in time, I don't have kind of any um, you know, stocks in the cybersecurity space that I'd say, oh, that to me is a kind of uh, a no-brainer that I feel very comfortable with um, because they lack this feature of um, being underpinned by very strong underlying cash flows. That all makes sense. Um, is Alibaba your favorite name in your portfolio? Do, do you, I'm just curious what your, your number one position is. No, no. So um, last time we spoke, um, you know, I spoke about a company called Byron, which um, is actually in the AI space. They provide big data and AI to Chinese banks to help them assess credit risk and also to help them um, in terms of their online uh, outreach uh, to clients or potential clients. Um, and you know, that is, I'd say, a, a relatively you know, small cap name. Uh, when we spoke last July, um, its enterprise value was approximately zero. But um, they announced a profit alert. Um, and you know, the content of their profit alert was that kind of normalized recurring profit had doubled in 2022. Uh, which would be a result would be surprising to many market participants because of the whole view that regularly cracked down on, you know, the, the fintech sector has been very harsh and therefore people would have been massively struggling. But, you know, this is a company that basically doubled its profitability last year because of, you know, growth in its data analytics business. Um, and that stock is trading at three times EV to EBITDA. Um, and uh, so it's exceptionally cheap. Um, it's a growth business in a, in my view, a sexy sector. Um, but it's- yeah, Does it also have, like uh, does Byrong have uh, any Western VCs behind it or is it, is it fully kind of China backed? No, no, it, 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 it does have uh, Western VCs behind it. Cool. Um, I mean, three times EBITDA sounds pretty cheap. What, what, do you, what do you think is holding holding them back from just a multiple expansion standpoint? Um, 
So, yeah, the share price has gone up and down with market sentiment, a little bit the same way the price of Alibaba and Baidu has gone up and down. Um, so, um, so I think it's the overall drag of negative sentiment. Um, mm-hmm. you, you know, also um, on the subject of, of kind of tech, uh, the other big name is Tencent. The, the most recent headline I saw of theirs was, uh, it sounds like they're going to be distributing some version of, of Oculus um, or, or Quest Pro, or I don't know if it's the Pro or the the two, but they're, they're going to be. Um, it looks like they're distributing uh, VR headsets now. Have Have you done much work on on Tencent as well? And you know, they're they're um, kind of the the other side of the coin with respect to Baba. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on them. Yeah. So so I don't think I have uh, any special insight to offer on Tencent. Um, so I won't comment on Tencent. Got it. Makes sense. Um, the other thing that I, I, you know, people talk a lot about with respect to China, these, you know, kind of the, the real estate in China and, and sort of uh, some of these ghost cities that, that have been built, you know, with, with no real populace. Um, and, and just, I think people kind of question like the growth in China as, you know, kind of from a macro level, um, you, you get a lot of uh, question marks around like what the true growth is. And um, I'm just curious how, how that impacts your own modeling and, and forecasts for um, for cash flow for a lot of these companies. Um, I mean, how do you diligence that? What's your thought on that? Okay, so I think uh, there is scope uh, for you know, the party to manipulate uh, economic data. And, um, you know, I think when the provinces send in their data, uh, they always tend to exaggerate their growth. And I believe the central government then actually gives everything a haircut. But so, you know, I'm not representing that all the economic data out of China is reliable, but um, the financials you get from many of the companies and the operating metrics is probably you know, much more reliable. Um, and kind of, to me, it's still obvious that if you look back over the last 20 years, the Chinese economy has grown faster and has a bigger proportion of the world economy than it was 20 years ago. Um, it's likely to be even bigger in another 20 years. And the companies with you know, um, unique, sustainable competitive advantages are going to grow and do well uh, in in that environment. Um, So, 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 you know, I I would say, you know, be fundamentals bottoms up. You know, the argument for investing in China is not a macro top-down argument. Uh, Economic growth doesn't necessarily translate well into investment returns. But um, you know, good fundamental performance and growing cash flows should translate into investment returns. Yeah. Um, one question I had: um, uh, What would you say are, are kind of the main catalysts for Alibaba? And maybe this would be a, a good one to end on, just given that it's it's sort of the the big liquid name um, that a lot of U.S. investors have 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 access to. Um, um, what would you say are the major catalysts coming up um, for what, what could unlock share price there? 
and maybe a timeline for those panels. Okay. Um, all right. So I think improve. I, I think a return to growth and improved uh, operating and financial numbers. Um, I think would be important. So the market is, I guess, expecting improved numbers, but to actually see it. Um, and then I think the other big thing is Ant Group and you know, potential um, IPO or valuation event on Ant Group. Now, um, you know, the Alibaba only discloses one single number being the earnings contribution from Ant that they take into their PL account. And that is actually lagged by three months. So when Alibaba reports for December, they're actually reporting Ant's results to September. And Ant is a little bit like Alibaba in that they have a massive investment portfolio. And in the third quarter, um, there was huge write downs on the investment portfolio of both Alibaba and Ant. So the number that it's disclosed for Ant in the Alibaba statements is kind of meaningless because it's after all the impairment charges on the investment portfolio. So unless you're an insider, it's very hard to get a true picture into the underlying you know, recurring profitability of Ant after the restructuring. Now, in due course, more granular information on that should come out. But my personal you know, guess is that the latest number includes massive impairment charges on Ant's investment portfolio and doesn't, in fact, reflect the true ongoing performance of Ant. And at some point in time, there'll be more granular disclosure as to what's happening with Ant. And that could also be a catalyst for the share price. So have you have you done any sort of fair value analysis on Ant itself? I mean, do you have a sense of like, just you know, if you put a range on it, what you think that that's, that's worth today? Um, so I, there's not enough information to do that exercise properly. Um, so kind of, we knew what it was. Uh, the available numbers are not granular enough to do any meaningful analysis. So I guess the way I look at it is there's not much value for Ant in the current share price. So it's an upside option. But to say kind of, you know, with any degree of, um, you know, precision, what the value might be, you know, the insiders will know. Uh, the insiders are buying back you know, stock. Alibaba has a big stock buyback program. You know, they can afford it, but uh, the market doesn't know. How big is their stock buyback program? Uh, um, it's, it's very large. They keep on increasing the size. Um, I might get the number wrong, but I want to say it's like $50 billion or something like that. Um, it, you know, it. it started off that kind of, you know, maybe 20 or 25 and, you know, they more or less doubled it, something like that. So, so it's a yeah. big stop. By, by, by. So the point is they have a strong balance sheet. They have very strong cash flows from operations. They can afford to buy back their stock. Uh, you know, I think this is a good final question that somebody just posted. What, what do you think are the three big misperceptions on China? 
Okay. Um, all right. So the first one uh, would be that uh, the economy is centrally planned and that it is a communist system uh, economically. So, you know, my view is that China um, in the private sector outside of heavily regulated sectors is kind of operates very much on free market lines. So, so that would be kind of one. Um, kind of the second point I would say is um, listening to the narrative you get from Communist Party officials and taking it very seriously. Um, a lot of narrative is repeated because in a Chinese context, it's politically correct to say so. You know, you need to mouth the right words, but that doesn't mean your actions align with, those, with, with the rhetoric. And you know, I guess the biggest example of that would be the abrupt pivot away from COVID. If you listen to the narrative on in October, you'd have said, well, there's going to be no pivot away from zero COVID for years, but there was. So it's taking you know, the narrative at face value. Um, the third one. I mean, maybe I'll stop there. I can't immediately think of it. Well, I'll, I'll add, I, I think the, the, the thing that struck me was the, uh, the lack of inflation in China. I think that's, that's an interesting data point because again this is sounding might sound u.s centric but we we all we hear about in the u.s is inflation so we sort of assume that there's inflation everywhere um there, i mean we know there is in europe but but i think it's interesting that in china they've, they've somehow managed it um so maybe that's that's kind of a, yeah, yeah, <laughs> a third. So, so, so that's a good point so you know i guess in july last year the view would be oh macro management of the chinese economy is awful and in the US, it's so much better. Um, so arguably, there's been excessive encouragement of risk-taking behavior in the US, creating some systemic risks. And you know, over the last four years, we haven't seen that sort of behavior in China. And um, you don't have that same irrational exuberance um, and so there are a lot of risks that people know about it. Um, but, um, you know, the problems in Chinese banks, for example, are well known, whereas I guess, you know, the blow up the Silicon Valley Bank would have been a shock to people. Um, you know, they wouldn't have predicted it six months ago. Yeah, you know, what I learned was uh, the discrepancy between how the, the G's, you know, the the systemically important banks in the U.S. are treated from a regulatory standpoint versus the smaller regional banks, um, and it's it's like it's a, a tale of two regulatory frameworks almost. So, um, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if like most of these regional banks are sitting on huge losses that haven't been realized, and and will you know. So maybe we end up seeing more of these Silicon Valley type failures. Who knows? Um, but Hugh, this was super educational as always. Great to hear your thoughts. Um, and your perspective. I know you're uh, you're obviously located um, outside the U.S. and you kind of you know get to see things we don't necessarily see so much here in the U.S. But always great to hear, have you on and, and looking forward to staying in touch um, and 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 following the story. It's it's obviously an important one uh, for folks in the U.S.
Well, thanks for your insightful questions. Thanks, you. Take care. Bye-bye.